Hi everyone and welcome to episode 23 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. So a little bit of a housekeeping to start this episode. We had a really lovely review on Apple Podcasts from someone called Cooper A. Loop, which I imagine is not your real name. Uh, but thank you very much for your comment in that you asked us to create a Patreon so you could support us, which is genuinely so sweet. So thank you so much. Um, we actually do have a Patreon. Um, and if you want to find us, you can go to patreon.com slash infraction the pod. So we are there. If you want to go and chuck us some of your spare change, we'd really appreciate it. We're in the process of working out what extra content we can bring you over on Patreon. Um, Extra content that won't infringe on how much research we put into our cases uh, because we really, really don't want to take away from that. So yes, any spare change you might want to give in the meantime would be so appreciated. Um, So thank you very much. Okay, so I think that's it. So let's get into today's case. Today's episode is all about murder, manipulation, and a really gross, pervy old man. You know that there are some true crime cases out there that are so wild that they sound like a movie plot? Well, today's case is one of those. The woman at the centre of today's episode is Cinnamon Brown. Cinnamon Darlene Brown was born to her parents, David and Brenda, on the 3rd of July 1970. David met Brenda when they had both been 15 years old, and a couple of years later, when she had become pregnant, the couple married. They named their daughter Cinnamon because they wanted her to have a name that stood out just in case she was ever famous one day. If only they'd known. Brenda and David stayed married for three years before they decided that they both wanted to separate. David was incredibly demanding and high maintenance and Brenda was still really young and she just wanted to enjoy life. They reportedly stayed friends despite the fact that almost instantly after their divorce, David remarried a lady called Laurie. Laurie and David didn't have any children together, but David still saw his daughter Cinnamon most weekends. Laurie and David's marriage lasted four years, but then, once again, David's eyes started to wander. When he was in his early 20s, he met 13-year-old Linda Bailey, and reportedly he took her to Las Vegas and married her in June of 1979, after Linda had turned 16. Gross. Yes, very. Within a few months, David was already bored of his third wife and he soon started a relationship with the lady he worked with. Her name was Cindy. Big Dave, who just absolutely loved a wedding, divorced Linda and married Cindy, making Cindy wife number four. I'm sure it comes as absolutely no shock to you whatsoever that this relationship also did not last. David was a very controlling husband and unlike his other wives, Cindy was not on board with his controlling behaviour and didn't bow down to his every need and this annoyed David quite a lot. Therefore, he divorced her and remarried his third wife, Linda Bailey. The couple once again moved in with each other, but this time Linda brought with her her younger sister, Patty. 11-year-old Patty Bailey moved in with her sister and new brother-in-law because her mother was reportedly an alcoholic and couldn't look after her properly. Therefore, Linda asked David if she could have her sister come and live with them, and David had obliged. The three of them lived in Garden Grove, a city in Orange County, California. And this is where this story really starts. During all these marriages, David's daughter Cinnamon had been living with her mother Brenda. Unfortunately, things weren't really working out between them and Cinnamon started spending longer periods of time at her father's home. At this point, Cinnamon was around eight or nine years old and going to her father's home and spending time with Patty, who was only a couple of years older than her, was really nice. It really felt to Cinnamon like Patty was her older sister. So just to be clear, his daughter's still only nine and he's already been through five weddings, albeit one of them to the same person. 
Yeah, it's really confusing. And to be honest, the timeline on all of it is just so difficult. It's reported genuinely so, so absurdly different in so many different places, including down to like what his age was, what Linda's age was, um, what Patty's age was. And there's only like certain dates and certain ages that really are quite clear and they're like kind of um, the same throughout all the research. So, but yes, he had married and remarried and remarried again um, throughout this entire time that Cinnamon was growing up and she was living with her mother. Um, and then, yeah, eventually where we are kind of like now in the story, he'd remarried his third wife. Uh, so making her, I guess, wife number five, but yeah, technically the same woman. Um, so that's Linda. And now they've moved in with each other. They're living with each other again. But this time they have living with them, Patty Bailey, who is Linda's at this point, 11 year old sister. So over time, Cinnamon moved in permanently with her father. David's business was doing well. He had quit his job and started his own company as a data recovery specialist, and he was soon raking in the money. I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, that his data recovery business was actually just him cleaning floppy disks and um, saying, and then being able to get the information off of them for his clients, and that he literally made millions from doing that. I don't know how true that is, but I read that in a, in a few places, and I just think that's absolutely wild. What an incredible business idea. When you say cleaning floppy disks, though, presumably you don't mean just like wiping them down with a J cloth. You do mean no. Like that's he... exactly what I mean. That is literally exactly what I mean. <laughs> and he called that data recovery. How strange. <laughs> so as Cinnamon got older, she reportedly started living in a trailer in the back garden of the Brown family home, rather than in the house with everyone else. It's very unclear why this happened. Some reports say that it was because she felt more grown up and she wanted her own space and her own privacy. But other reports say that it was because Cinnamon was turning into a bit of a problem teenager and control freak David couldn't handle it. By 1984, when Cinnamon was 14 years old, Linda and David had a baby girl who they named Crystal. Cinnamon really loved her new baby half-sister, but reports say that she didn't get on very well with Linda, her stepmom. David said that this feud between Linda and Cinnamon was one of the reasons he didn't want Cinnamon living in the house with them, especially now they had such a small baby. David said that Cinnamon was a very sullen teenager and she fought with everyone. He said the reason Cinnamon had to come and live with him in the first place was because Cinnamon had fought so much with her own mum. He painted her as a really moody, awful, hormonal teenager. He said she didn't do well at school and she was always messy and disrespectful around the house. David said that he did let Cinnamon come into the house for meals and to watch TV, but that he just didn't want to live with her. I think we have to take everything that David says with a pinch of salt. I don't know if what he's saying is true about Cinnamon's behaviour or her mood or anything like that. But either way, she's his 14-year-old daughter. Forcing her to live in a trailer in their back garden sounds incredibly neglectful to me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think teenagers are hormonal at the best of the times but ultimately um cinnamon's already watched her dad go through countless marriages she's her relationship with her mum's broken down i think it sounds fairly reasonable at this point that actually she may be upset or emotional over and above that of the standard teenager yeah completely and i think we also have to remember is that he's moved her in to his house all but for whatever reason he's done that, he's moved her into his house with her new stepmom, who's only nine years older than her. Yeah, well, and also moved her into the house, but frankly moved her straight back out of it into the garden. Yeah. It doesn't give a teenager a huge amount of sense of security and a proper attachment with their parents, does it, if you're being made to live in the garden? Yeah, absolutely. 
So the family's already very strange dynamic changed for the worse on March 19, 1985, at half past three in the morning, when the police were called to that family home in Garden Grove. Darrow Halligan, a patrol officer in the Garden Grove area, received the radio call stating that there was a possible homicide on Ocean Beach Drive. He was alone and had no backup, but he was the closest to the home and so immediately he started driving there. As he pulled down the street, he felt nervous as there were barely any streetlights and he couldn't see anyone outside the house. Usually, with scenes like this, people were screaming and shouting and urging desperately for the police to quickly make their way indoors. This scene was different. It was eerily quiet. Darrow Halligan started wondering if it was a prank call, but then his radio came to life again to let him know that the victim was inside the house and had suffered a gunshot wound. No description of a possible suspect was given. David Brown opened the front door to his home and stood on the porch. As Halligan approached him, David said, I think my wife's been shot. I'm scared to go look. She's in the bedroom. Officer, would you go and look? Officer Halligan walked through the home and found the bedroom. He used his torch to sweep the scene and saw a woman lying on the bed, covered in blood. He checked her pulse and checked for breathing, but the woman was dead. So the way you made that sound was though David was incredibly calm and matter-of-fact on the doorstep. Is that an accurate description of his behaviour? Because you'd think he'd be quite distressed that the fact that his wife might have been shot. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how he was. He was incredibly calm. He wasn't outside kind of urging the police or, you know, anyone to come in. He wasn't looking for help. Um... And yeah, the fact that when the police, uh, when the police officer came to the door, he literally stated, I think my wife's been shot and she's in the bedroom, but basically uh, insinuated that he was too scared to have gone and checked if his wife had been shot um, and he hadn't been in the bedroom. So he asked the officer to go and look for him, which is totally bizarre, like very, very bizarre behavior. Mm. So in the bedroom, Officer Halligan checked the pulse of the lady who was lying on the bed, but unfortunately she was dead. He noticed a large amount of wet blood on her chest and took in the scene around him. Downstairs, he could hear a baby crying and a lady sobbing. Upstairs in the bedroom, there was no sign of a struggle. The blanket covering the woman was still pulled flat. He suspected that she had been asleep when she had been shot. A gun lay on the floor between the bed and the door. It was determined that the victim was 23-year-old Linda Brown. Within a few minutes, more police officers and paramedics arrived at the home. The paramedics attempted to resuscitate Linda, but their attempts were fruitless. Linda had lost too much blood. Downstairs, Patty Bailey and David Brown sat in the living room. Patty was holding eight-month-old Crystal. Patty told the officers that she had heard a gunshot upstairs and then she'd seen Cinnamon leaving the premises out the back door. David Brown claimed that he had been out at the time of the shooting, but had returned shortly after to find Cinnamon missing. So if you're sat there like I was when I first read that, thinking, where on earth was this man at half three in the morning? Well, it seems that David Brown had said to the police officers that on that night, he and Linda had had an argument and that he was very sensitive to their fights. He says that they had made up after their little spat and they'd gone to bed together, but that he had lain awake most of the night, still reeling from their fight. Therefore, he had decided to get up and go for a drive to try and clear his head. He said he had gone to a shop, bought a drink and an apple pie, and then had gone to a quiet spot on a beach to think about things. He said he then stopped at another restaurant to use their toilet on his way home. He says that he didn't buy anything at that restaurant, but he remembers seeing a, quote, heavy-built waitress with curly red hair and glasses. He said that when he got home, he opened the door to find his sister-in-law, Patty Bailey, shaking and crying hysterically, and she'd said, Cinny tried to kill me. Well, that sounds like a fairly watertight 
alibi if it is true, which I'm sure you'll be about to tell me. Well, this is the thing. Does it not just, it just sounds like exactly like that, like an absolute, like word for word, solid alibi. And I just think it's just so ridiculous that that's the first thing he said to the police. And just even down to things like, oh, and I actually went to another restaurant on my way home, but I didn't buy anything. Um, But I do remember seeing a waitress and this is the the description of her. It's just infuriating. (laughs) Um, I mean, yes, it sounds a very strange thing for him to do, but it does sound to me like it should be completely falsifiable. I mean, he must have a receipt or a shop attendant who can witness him buying his 3am apple pie. And then this waitress is very bold of him to make up the existence of someone who, if is found to not in fact be real, completely shoots his alibi to pieces. So I would have thought, as strange as it sounds, it ought to be the sort of thing that can be proven to be true or not true quite easily. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's, it's absolutely that. It's so It would be so easy to disprove or prove with a little bit of police work. Um, but as we will go on to see, um, David Brown is a very bold kind of guy. So um, I don't know if he would necessarily have been thinking about that at the time. But yeah, maybe that he would have because he went into so much detail about it, definitely. Um, so obviously the last thing that David said to the police was that he'd opened the door and Patty was stood there shaking, crying hysterically and had said, Cinny tried to kill me. So at that point, the police then went to question Patty. She said that the whole evening, everything had been relatively normal. She said that David's parents had come over and spent the evening with them. And she recalls them being quite vocal about the way Linda was parenting Crystal. She recalled that David and Linda had had a fight because David had been on his parents' side and Linda felt like David should have been supporting her. Patty said that during the evening, Cinnamon had asked her if she could stay on the pull-out mattress in her room rather than going back out to sleep in the trailer. Patty said that Cinnamon seemed a bit off and she felt like Cinnamon really wanted to ask her something or talk about something, so she'd said yes to Cinnamon sharing her room. Everyone had then gone to bed and Cinnamon had been watching MTV with Patty when Patty decided that she was knackered and she wanted to go to sleep. Just before she got to her room, however, Cinnamon stopped her and asked her if she could do one small favour for her. Cinnamon opened her palm and revealed that she was holding a small gun. Patty said that Cinnamon then asked her how to use it. Patty asked her why she wanted to know, and Cinnamon responded saying, just in case someone breaks in. Patty said she was stunned and confused, but nevertheless she did show Cinnamon how to use the gun. When pushed further on this, Patty said that she wasn't concerned about Cinnamon having the gun, she didn't actually think that she was going to use it, but she just showed her anyway. How does she know how to use a gun? I'm pretty sure she said in the um, in one of the police reports that I read, I'm pretty sure she said that she didn't know that she just got it off telly. Um, she said that she told Cinnamon, oh, you cock this bit and then you pull the trigger and, and that's how you shoot it. Um, but she claims that she didn't actually hold the gun. So I don't know. That's what she said. She says that she just got the information from what she's seen on the telly, I think. Got you. So next, Patty said that she went to bed and fell asleep. She was then woken up by a loud bang in her bedroom. Panicked, she turned towards the door and she said she saw Cinnamon standing there holding a gun. She said that Cinnamon then ran out the room. Next, she heard three more gunshots inside the house. She recalled that she just lay in bed completely still and petrified. She said she could hear baby Crystal crying. She ran to the nursery and grabbed her and then ran back into her own room. She said that she didn't look around the house for anyone. She said that shortly after this, she heard a faint knocking at the front door. She was petrified that it was Cinnamon, but then she heard a key in the lock and she realised that it couldn't have been Cinnamon because she didn't have a key. Relieved that it must have either been David or Linda, she went downstairs as the door opened and David entered the house. 
It was at this point that she was crying hysterically and had told David that she thought Cinnamon had shot Linda. So during this time that Patty and David are telling these stories to the police, Cinnamon is still nowhere to be seen. This bit of the case is really dodgy to me because Patty said that David grabbed her and was asking her frantically to tell her where she had heard the gunshots. Patty said that she didn't know. She felt like she'd heard them close to her bedroom though, but she didn't know which room. Patty said that David then searched the house and came back to Patty saying that he had looked in almost every room but that everything looked fine. Patty asked if he'd gone into his bedroom to check if Linda was hurt and David said that he had not checked the master bedroom. She said that she begged him to go and check the bedroom but that David was too scared because he quote knew what I was afraid of and he couldn't face it. But this just sounds ridiculous to me. I mean there's only one other person in this house apart from Patty and obviously Crystal the baby so why quite why he even bothered to go around and check the rest of the house I mean fair enough you might be scared of what you're going to find but why would you search the entire house except for starting with the one room that someone is obviously going to be in yeah I don't know I don't have an answer for you I think it's absolutely ridiculous and also because in that instance you don't know what's happened okay you've heard gunshots but you know Linda might have just been hit in the leg or something like that she might need you to go in there and administer some first aid or something or anything do you know what I mean like I can't imagine thinking that my husband or wife had been shot in a room somewhere and then just not going into that room just in case I found them in there like you'd want to find them surely so you could try and help them yeah, the risk of you not going in at the risk of also not saving their life when, like you say, they could be completely alive and just in need of a tourniquet. Absolutely. To add to the suspicion even more, the phone records also showed that David had called his father first before he'd called the police. This is obviously incredibly strange, but when he was questioned on it, David said that he'd simply panicked and his father had been the first person he had thought of to call. He told him to hang up and call the police, which is what David had then done. Obviously, the pertinent thing to do next was to try and locate Cinnamon. Patty said that she had gone out to check the trailer and that Cinnamon hadn't been there. One of the officers said he'd also checked the garden but couldn't see anyone either. David gave them the address of Cinnamon's mother's home in case she'd run away there and Patty gave the police the names of some of Cinnamon's school friends but neither her mother or her friends had heard from her or knew where she was. One of the officers asked his supervisor what they should do with the dog that had been found in Cinnamon's trailer. He told him to just take the dog and put him with the other puppies in the dog pen at the back of the garden. By this point, it was about seven in the morning and the officer took the dog and walked over to the dog pen. Inside this big dog pen, there were lots of smaller dog houses. Some had dogs awake in them and others had dogs sleeping in them. But as he looked around, his eyes fell to the larger dog house and his pulse quickened. Inside was a small girl curled up in a fetal position. Why is there so many dogs? Um... I wish I had an answer for you. I really don't know. I just think maybe they got a lot of pets. <laughs> Have you even researched this case? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, my dear, I have. Um, but it's very difficult. There's a lot of very varying information out there. There's like two books and a TV series that's been dedicated to this and all of them are different. Obviously, I didn't research this based on a bloody TV series. Um, but yeah, all the information out there is just like so bizarre, especially when it comes to the finer details like this. Um, but this information has come from Anne Rule's book and she um, researched this so heavily. She talked to all the family members and stuff. So yes, Sally, I have researched this and I do believe this to be correct information. <laughs> <laughs> so inside the dog pen, as he got closer, he saw that there was a girl passed out and covered in her own vomit and urine and she was surrounded by half-digested pill capsules. 
This girl was, of course, 14-year-old Cinnamon Brown, and in her hand, Cinnamon was clutching a note. The note read, Dear God, please forgive me. I didn't mean to hurt her. The officers bundled a now-awake but drowsy Cinnamon into a police car. They took swabs from her hands to check for gunshot residue and passed her a bin as she vomited again. Paramedics examined Cinnamon and found her to be fine. They said her pulse was fine and that although her eyes were a little bit sluggish and they did take time to react to the light they shone at her, she was okay. However, they did tell the police that she was clearly reacting to something and that's why she was vomiting so much and since they didn't know what she'd ingested, they should take her to see a doctor. Back at the house, one of the officers had found three empty bottles of prescription medication. The pills were an assortment of very strong painkillers, blood pressure medication used to reduce fluid within the body's tissue and prescription tranquilizers. They deduced that it must have been this medication that Cinnamon had taken, and they concluded that if Cinnamon hadn't thrown up the pills, it was highly likely that she would have been dead by now. In the police car, Cinnamon asked in a worried voice if her dad was okay. The officer responded saying David was fine and Patty was fine. Cinnamon asked, what about Linda? How's Linda? But the officer didn't reply. At the station, after Cinnamon had changed her clothes and had been read her Miranda rights, the officers told her that she had been taken into custody because Linda was dead. Cinnamon was confused and upset that Linda was dead, but said that she understood her rights and said that she did want to comply with the officers and answer their questions. The initial police interview with Cinnamon was really quite strange. She was very open with the police and insisted them fully. She seemed sweet and she seemed genuinely like she wanted to help them. They didn't at all see the bratty girl that David had alluded to. Although during this time, she did seem really drowsy and she did keep losing concentration. Cinnamon said during the interview that she had shot the gun three times, once in Patty's room and twice in Linda's room. During this interview, Cinnamon said that her and Linda had never gotten along. She thought that Linda thought of her as a daddy's girl and that Linda was jealous of her. As I kind of alluded to earlier, there was only a nine-year age gap between Cinnamon and Linda, so it's not really hard to imagine that there might have been a fairly fractious relationship between the teenager and her new stepmom. The rest of her police interview is pretty incoherent as she seems like she's really falling asleep. The only thing that is important to know is that she does lightly mumble, please don't let them get away with murder. She also says the reason that she shot in Patty's room was because the gun got stuck. It's unclear if she took the gun into Patty's room to get her help or what, but she's also said that earlier that day, Linda had said that she would kill Cinnamon if she didn't just leave the house. At this point, Cinnamon became unconscious and she was taken to hospital where her blood pressure was so low that it barely registered until she was hooked up to a machine. She had blood taken for tests and had an IV put in. During her time in hospital, she mumbled a lot of things, including that she was tired. She hadn't slept for 24 hours. And then she said, there was an accident and I killed my stepmom. I didn't mean to do it on purpose. Gunshot residue was taken from David and Patty too, and this, along with the swabs taken from Cinnamon, were tested. Patty's swab came back as testing positive for gunshot residue, despite claims that she hadn't touched a gun for over a year. There was no gunshot residue on Cinnamon, however the detective said that it was likely that this could have been washed away when she'd vomited on herself. The police questioned Patty on the presence of the gunshot residue. They tried to speak to her when David wasn't with her, but he appeared during their conversation, as he usually did. David said that that day they'd planned to go into the desert to do some shooting practice. He said they sometimes went there to shoot cans and that Patty had helped him put the guns in the car. He said that must have been why the residue had been on her. Patty nodded to this and said that they had decided not to go in the end because it had been raining. But, I mean, 
if that sounds a very recent event, it seems very strange that she'd have forgotten that she held that gun, doesn't it? It does, Sally. You're absolutely correct. So despite some of the officers thinking exactly what you're thinking, that this doesn't add up whatsoever and David and Patty are being super dodgy, the district attorney decided to indict Cinnamon Brown on first-degree murder charges and set her trial date for a year's time, during which time she would remain in county jail. After about a year or so at the trial, Cinnamon was painted as a girl suffering from mental instabilities. On the stand at the request of David Brown, Cinnamon's family reported that she had lots of imaginary friends, namely some called Maynard, Oscar and Aunt Bertha, and that she regularly talked to these made-up people in her life. David wanted the family to portray Cinnamon as mentally unstable so that her plea of not guilty by reason of insanity would fit with the personality they'd portrayed her to have. David Brown actually didn't attend the trial of his daughter at all, saying that he was too ill and therefore couldn't attend. During the lead-up to the trial, David told Cinnamon that it would be best if she just told everyone that she couldn't remember what had happened to her on the night of the murder, a story that Cinnamon stuck to throughout the rest of her police questioning and during her trial. On the stand, Patty told the court that she didn't know who had come into her room and shot at her on the night that her sister was killed. When asked why she had told the police that she'd seen Cinnamon holding the gun, Patty said that she never said that to the police and she didn't know who was holding the gun because it had been too dark. She said all she saw was a shadowy figure. Cinnamon's mother also got on the stand and told the court that Cinnamon was a bit erratic and not at all with it. She also said that Cinnamon talked to her imaginary friends a lot. However, none of these testimonies mattered because the judge found Cinnamon guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced her to 27 years to life in prison. She was to be held at a juvenile prison until she turned 18 and then she was to be moved to an adult prison. Were her family at this point you might know the answer, but were they trying to paint her as unwell and erratic, etc., to help her get off or get a lighter sentence by pleading not guilty by reason of insanity? Or were they just, I don't know, it just seems like no one in this trial from her own family is trying to support her. And I understand it might be hard to support your child if you think genuinely that she's murdered someone. But also, it just seems strange to me and a bit sad that no one seems to be there for her during any of this. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, But from what I can tell, the reason that they are portraying her in this way is because they think it's going to help her. They think that the uh, that the court won't find her guilty if they think that she's a teenager who's mentally unstable, who talks to imaginary friends. Um, And it is essentially she is essentially portrayed in that way to try and fit with her not guilty by reason of insanity plea. Um, And I think, yeah, David is David who's told all of them to to talk about her like this it's david who has asked them um to portray cinnamon in this really yeah negative light like you're saying um and of course cinnamon was there at the entire trial and saw this all happening but from what i can tell she genuinely thought that this was a good thing that they were saying all these things and it was going to help her get off or get a lighter sentence yeah i can see it yeah so during the trial, David Brown's only appearance at the court was on this last day for her sentencing and he disappeared from the courtroom as soon as the judge finished his sentencing and before Cinnamon even had a chance to turn around and see him. In prison, Cinnamon was told that she was only allowed three phone calls a month. A few months into her sentence, she tried to get a hold of her father only to find that he'd moved house and changed his phone number. When she eventually got through to him, Patty answered the phone. Cinnamon felt snubbed she asked her dad why Patty was still living with him and why they'd moved house together. 
Of course, Patty was Linda's younger sister and had only been living with them because Linda had been looking after her. It seemed strange to Cinnamon that now Linda was gone, why Patty was still staying there with her father. Oh my god, I know why. What? Please tell me he's not with Patty. Oh, Salzo. <laughs> well, David's response to Cinnamon was that Patty was like his daughter and that he couldn't just send her back to her mother's. So at each meeting with her parole officer and the parole board, Cinnamon was constantly told that until she showed some remorse and took accountability for the crime she had committed, she wasn't going to be released from prison. However, Cinnamon stood strong in what her father had told her and she continued to say she couldn't remember anything that had happened that night. Of course, they pushed at this, asking her why on earth she had told the police information about what had happened straight after she was arrested and asked her why she was now saying she couldn't remember. Cinnamon just kept saying that she didn't know what had happened. Whilst all this was going on, Cinnamon was continuously promised by her father that he was trying to pull strings to get her out of prison. Each Christmas, he told her that next Christmas she'd be home, but of course, she never was. Then, one day, an officer came to her and asked her whether or not she knew that her father had received a huge payout from Linda's life insurance. Cinnamon said that he was lying and that she knew her father had received no money. The officer told her that David Brown had in fact received a payout of $842,000 from Linda's life insurance policy. I checked this figure so many times because I just couldn't believe it, but $842,000 in 1985 is about the equivalent of $2 million in today's money. That is an insane life insurance policy for a 23-year-old housewife. Yeah, I was going to say, what did Linda do? That's crazy. I think David justified it by saying that Linda did very important work for his business or something, like secretarial work for his business. But I mean, come on, like $2 million worth in today's money. That's insane. And she's 23. Do you know what I mean? That's just, oh, it's just mental. Yeah, although I don't know if it, is it affected by whether you have kids or not? Either way, yeah, huge sum of money and a complete shocker in this story from my point of view. Um, yeah, I completely agree. It's insane. So officers soon realised that David had actually taken out several policies on Linda's life just a few months before she died. On the 3rd of July 1988, Cinnamon's 18th birthday, an investigator who worked for the district attorney named Jane Newell got in touch with Cinnamon to explain to her that he had been tracking her father's movements for the past three years and he thought that Cinnamon was lying about her memory loss in order to protect her father. During this meeting, Jane Newell revealed a lot more information about David Brown and revealed information about a lustrous affair David had been having with Patty, just as you'd guess, Sal. Cinnamon found out that, while she'd been sat in jail awaiting her trial, not even a year after Linda had died, her father had taken his teenage former sister-in-law to Las Vegas and married her, making Patty Bailey his sixth wife. At this point, though, I think... There's two ways to see this. My initial brain then just said, oh my God, what is it about this man that all of these women are so attracted to? But actually, I just think he's got to be a master manipulator and verging on abusive because effectively, Linda and Patty now have both been groomed by him, really. Mm -hmm. Obviously got them very trapped. And now I just feel incredibly sorry for Patty, whose fate I hope isn't quite as horrific as Linda's, but is no doubt looking quite bleak at this point. Absolutely. He's groomed them from the beginning and more information comes out later and we can really genuinely see the extent to how much he grooms these, these um, well, young girls at the time um, and, yeah, who he ends up marrying. It's disgusting. He's an absolute deplorable human being. 
So after this conversation with Jane Yule, Cinnamon was left with just her own thoughts of this horrible news, and eventually she contacted the district attorney a month after this visit and asked to speak to him immediately to tell him what had happened on March 19, 1985. She told the district attorney that her father, David Brown, had coerced her and Patty into killing Linda. She said that Patty was actually going to be the one to shoot Linda, and that in February 1985, Patty had stood over her sister's body and aimed the gun at her, but that she had backed out at the last minute, saying she couldn't do it. It was at this point that David said that it would probably be best for Cinnamon to pull the trigger, because she was only 14 years old and the prosecution wouldn't send her to prison for it. This confession was obviously huge news to the district attorney, but what they really needed was a confession from David Brown himself. Therefore, three days later, Cinnamon arranged a meeting with her dad at the prison, during which she was wearing a wire. The taped recording revealed David saying that he was sorry that Cinnamon had ended up in prison, but that if she told the police the truth about what had happened that day, then, quote, we'd all be in jail. Then, either stupidly or naively, I can't quite tell which, he went on to say to Cinnamon that maybe he could get Patty to confess to her part in the murder, and then Patty would be able to swap places with Cinnamon in prison. I mean, I'm sorry, David Hun, but that's just not how the law works. <laughs> yeah, this man is just a nasty, nasty idiot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, during this secretly recorded conversation, David acknowledged that he had given Cinnamon a drink mixed with a cocktail of drugs and pills to take shortly before the murder. This conversation was enough for probable cause, and the police went to David's home and arrested both him and Patty for the murder of Linda Brown. Whilst David was in custody, stating that he had originally been involved in the discussions with the two girls to kill Linda, but that the girls had initiated the whole thing and he thought they were joking, Patty was in another room, completely throwing David under the bus. She told officers that she had been under David's spell and she couldn't believe that she had almost killed her own sister. Her story was actually almost identical to Cinnamon's story. She said that David had told Patty to kill Linda originally, but that she couldn't do it, and then he told Cinnamon to do it. Over several years, David had repeatedly told them that Linda needed to die, that she was horrible to them and they'd be happier without her. He said over and over again that he'd overheard Linda on the phone to her brother and that the two had planned to kill David and take his money and his business. He kept telling the girls that Linda had to die or else she would kill him, but that he couldn't kill his then wife because he was too grossed out by the sight of blood. At a preliminary hearing for David Brown's involvement in Linda's death, both Patty and Cinnamon took the stand and testified against him, stating that he was the mastermind behind the entire plot and that they had protected him for far too long. Pending his trial, he was remanded in jail. In an absolutely ridiculous move from David Brown, the police found out through a jailhouse informant that, whilst awaiting the trial for the murder of his fifth wife, David Brown was behind bars plotting the murder of his sixth wife, Patty. The jailhouse informant secretly recorded David Brown hiring him to murder Patty Bailey, the district attorney's lead investigator Jane Newell, and Jeffrey Robinson, the lead prosecutor in his case. The informant, who was fully cooperating with the police, was released from jail, and then he went back to visit David Brown and told him that he'd successfully murdered all three of them, to which David Brown can be heard saying on a secret recording, Wonderful, you did great. 
What is wrong with this man? What a complete idiot. I mean, how does he think that solves his problem if he just keeps killing everyone? Eventually, everyone will just forget that he's a horrible, manipulative sexual predator and they'll just let the whole thing slide and he'll get off scot-free. I mean, seriously? I mean, yeah, he's 100% not smart, but he is also just a disgusting, narcissistic, awful human being. That's really the only way to describe him. I think he's just so, so narcissistic that he genuinely doesn't see the issue with everything that he's doing like that his way to solve every single problem that he's having is just by killing people off it's just absolutely ridiculous he's such an idiot and he can't even do the killing himself i mean yeah but that's what annoys me throughout this entire thing is that every time there's any reference to him asking him to kill someone else he always says well you you know that i would do it if i could but i can't because i'm too i'm too afraid of the sight of blood like shut up what an idiot yeah don't at least don't admit that yeah <laughs> also not at all like I'm trying to give him tips or anything, but there's a million ways to kill someone without creating any kind of like blood. Like, don't be so ridiculous that you're obviously just using it as a shitty excuse. Yeah, because you're a coward. Exactly. So because of this recording that was taken by the jailhouse informant, the prosecutors also added conspiracy to commit murder to David's list of charges. In May 1989, Patty Bailey pled guilty to her involvement in Linda's death, saying that she had urged Cinnamon to pull the trigger at the request of David, and she was sent to the California Youth Authority, where she was to spend four years. The following year, in June 1990, David Brown's trial began. At his trial, both Patty and Cinnamon once again testified against him. What Patty revealed about her relationship with David was truly shocking. As we know, when she was 11, she was taken into David's home to live with him and her sister. She said that almost immediately after she moved in, David started talking to her about how he was going to marry her someday and that he started touching her when Linda wasn't looking, when she was 11. She said that by the time she was 15, her and David started a sexual relationship and would have sexual intercourse at least once a week whilst Linda was shopping or in the shower. So at her trial, that's how Patty describes it. She calls it sexual intercourse. But I think it's quite clear to all of us that that isn't sex. It's grooming and it's rape. She was 15 years old, so she couldn't legally consent to it. And he'd been grooming her since she was 11. So at this point, when she was 15, when they'd started this, well, when he started raping her, essentially, he was in his early 30s and she was 15. It's just awful. Yeah, it makes your stomach turn. It does, and like because of the grooming and everything else, Patty really felt like she was like completely in love with him, like she was absolutely infatuated by him, which is why, you know, he he was able to push her to the point of like, um, of committing, you know, these heinous crimes against her own sister. It's just awful. It's just he's so manipulative. He's so disgusting. So unbeknownst to Cinnamon, Patty revealed on the stand that David had told her that if she could convince Cinnamon to kill Linda, then she would be out the way, and then David promised he would marry Patty. At this point, as we just mentioned, Patty was a teenager completely brainwashed and in love with this man who had promised her the world. Both Patty and Cinnamon had been completely manipulated by David into believing that Linda was going to kill him to take his business and his money. Patty, who was in love with David and wanted to marry him, was devastated that this might happen and didn't want to lose him. At the same time, Cinnamon was scared that Linda was going to kill her father. Both girls had been conditioned, manipulated and brainwashed over the years into believing that Linda was the evil killer and not David. It appeared to the court that David was attempting to kill his daughter when he gave her the cocktail of drugs that he made her drink. The dosage of pills was lethal and if Cinnamon hadn't thrown up, she likely would have died. 
For whatever reason, despite acknowledging that it did appear that David had tried to kill Cinnamon too that night, he was not charged with Cinnamon's attempted murder. At the trial, it also came out that, a year after Patty and David had married, Patty had given birth to their daughter. She revealed that everyone thought that someone else other than David was the father because David had made her swear to keep their marriage a secret. Essentially, at the trial, it was made blatantly clear that David had fully manipulated his daughter and his then sister-in-law into killing Linda Brown. He convinced them that they needed to do it because Linda was evil and was going to kill him, when in fact it was simply so he could make a huge financial gain by claiming her life insurance policy after her death. He had tried to commit the perfect crime by then attempting to kill his daughter too, in what was made to look like a suicide attempt. Prosecutors said that if he had successfully killed Cinnamon, then it's very likely he would have gotten away with the entire thing, as it really would have just looked like a classic murder-suicide committed by a spiteful, jealous teenager. So this is what happened on that night. On March 19th, 1985, David awoke Cinnamon and Patty, who were both asleep in Patty's room, and told them that tonight was the night. The two girls took the gun, and trying to work out how to use it, ended up accidentally shooting it in Patty's room. This was that first shot. Then, Patty and Cinnamon went into Linda's room where she was asleep. Cinnamon, being urged on by Patty, shot Linda in the chest. Linda started groaning and gurgling, and this frightened Cinnamon, so she shot her once again in the chest. The two then left the room. It's a bit modelled what happened next, but they went and picked up baby Crystal and went to see David in another part of the house, and then David rang his father to explain that he thought that something had happened to Linda, and then he rang the police. The rest is what we discussed earlier when the police arrived. So he did never go out, so his whole alibi was just completely false? Yeah, it really appears that he didn't leave at all. He basically thought he woke them up, he, either before the murder or after the murder, forced Cinnamon to drink... Um, the cocktail of drugs so he'd actually said to her something along the lines of um, this will make you really sick so you can basically claim that you weren't in your right mind when you did this kind of thing Um, and she's obviously only 14 so she just went along with whatever her father had said Um, and yeah it doesn't appear at all that he went out so I don't really know why he gave so much detail but I think it's one of those things isn't it it's like when people are trying to lie they just go over and beyond on like all the sort of information they're giving so I think it might have been that yeah, absolutely. But really, I don't know why I'm surprised at this point, because he is, by all accounts, just an idiot. But yeah, I mean, he's put himself at so much hi- at such a high risk of being found out by making up a completely fabricated alibi that could have been disproved. And frankly, I'm slightly surprised that the police never realised he was lying sooner. I mean, given what his actual story was, that Cinnamon had killed Linda, it's not implausible that he was in the house when that happened, so it's a completely unnecessary lie from him. And I'm surprised the police never picked up that it was a lie, and that didn't raise more alarm bells, as if there wasn't already quite a few, about, well, hang on, why was this man lying about being outside of the house? The entire thing, though, the, the entire thing with the police was that they just completely... um beeline for cinnamon when they realized that you know that she'd taken these drugs and that she had this note in her hand that said that she'd you know done a terrible thing and god please forgive me that thing you know they just looked at her and they were like oh this is just such an easy case like we've got it and then of course cinnamon even confessed kind of in her um in her first police interview she did say that she had shot linda so for them it was a slam dunk so there were some like junior officers who were like whoa 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 like we don't think this is as clear cut but um the top dogs within the police, they didn't care because they were like, we can take this to the district attorney and it's absolutely fine, we can get a conviction. And it was only really um, the district attorney's lead investigator, um, Jane Newell, who uh, kept 
essentially pushing through with this and kept investigating this and kept, you know, going after David Brown and following him and seeing what he was doing. Um, and that's why this really all came to a head. But I think if it had been less solely in the police's hands, I don't think that it, any of this would ever have come out, you know, unless Cinnamon or Patty had come forward maybe at a later date. Um, but yeah, it didn't really seem to be on the police's radar at all. No, and I suppose, I mean, from their perspective, it is a compelling case. It's a narrative that makes sense. And a lot of the time in these cases, unfortunately, it is usually the simplest story that makes sense. So I do understand that, but it definitely seems, and maybe it is just hindsight, it definitely seems like there's some red flags here regarding David. But otherwise, I mean, thank God for Jane Newell. <laughs> exactly. So during his trial, David Brown tried a whole load of things to try and get out of his charges. He claimed that the recordings were obtained illegally, that Cinnamon's voice had been too soft on the stand and so he couldn't properly bring a defence to her claims because he hadn't heard her, and that the district attorney had a conflict of interest in the case. All his claims were disregarded, and in June 1989, he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for his involvement in his wife's death and the conspiracy to commit murder charges. Three years later, in February 1992, Cinnamon Brown was paroled from prison at the age of 21. She had spent almost seven years in prison. Her parole sparked some controversy, with some people thinking that she hadn't served long enough. A member of the parole board who had voted against her early release said that although she had made lots of progress, he didn't feel that she had quite yet explored why she was able to shoot her victim twice and then conceal the truth for many years while showing no remorse. And like from my point of view, I do understand a little bit where he's coming from, but I think he's being quite narrow minded here, to be honest, because obviously his whole issue is that he doesn't understand why she lied about it for so long and why she protected her father for that long. But I think it does need to be considered that that entire time she was still under his manipulation and his control. She really didn't see the light, as it were, until she realised that he'd had this massive payout from Linda's life insurance. And then she started realising that, you know, there might have been ulterior motives or whatever. But I really believe that up until she confessed the truth, she really was just totally under his control and was drawn so far into his lies and manipulation. So I do get what that parole board member is saying, but I do think it's so narrow-minded because it's much deeper than just, oh, she lied. Like, she lied because she was just so overwhelmed and so caught up in his manipulation and she was just trying to protect him. Yeah, absolutely. I think ultimately she was a child at this point. She was a child that may have been slightly under emotionally developed given the issues she'd already faced in uh, you know, her teenage years and her childhood. And yeah, I think she was probably a combination of scared of her dad and also absolutely trying to protect him. It's a huge weight to put on any child's shoulders. The idea that they need to kill to save your parent. I mean, 99% of children, I think, I'm not saying they would go through with it, but in that situation probably would buckle under that emotional stress of I need to do this to save my parent regardless of how close they are etc and no I completely think that if you've got any psychologist or psychiatrist to sit down and talk to her at the time this had gone on I'm sure you'd have found a kid who was really frightened and was trying to do the right thing with like the limited moral compass that she had and I absolutely think keeping it for a secret for all of those years I don't really think it bears any relevance to be honest I think yeah under all of that time until she realized that actually her father was out for himself and it was never about uh cinnamon protecting him etc until she was finally betrayed by him and that kind of blind unconditional love was broken then yeah of course she's going to keep it a secret and keep protecting him that's what he's conditioned her to think she needs to do 
Yeah, I, I literally could not agree more with you. I think it's absolutely, it's that word, it's conditioned. I think she was over the years just conditioned over and over and over again into believing all the lies and all the stuff that came out of his mouth. And um, yeah, that kind of conditioned her, I guess, into doing this awful, awful thing. I mean, of course, like it is, it is horrific when you write it down on paper and you say that this 14-year-old girl killed her stepmom at the request of her father. It seems ridiculous, but when you break it down and you look at all the mental abuse and the emotional abuse she was suffering at his hands, it's really not hard to imagine, like you said, why she might buckle underneath that and why she might do that. Because I totally agree with you. I think, yeah, 99% of children would want to help their parents in that situation. And she genuinely believed that he was in danger. Um, and he's he is the worst person ever for making her do that and making her feel those ways. It's just awful. It's just, it's unbelievable, isn't it? It's unimaginable. I cannot imagine how she must have felt. Um, and then sitting in prison for seven years, still thinking that he's out there protecting her. Um, it's just awful. And knowing full well that she was the one who could have brought this all to an end by just confessing to what had happened. And she still didn't do that because she was still absolutely so certain for that length of time that he was just still out there trying to protect her. It's just, it's unbelievably sad. And it's so abhorrent from him. Yeah, I agree. To do that to your own child, I just think is disgusting. Like you're their caregiver, you're their protector. And he let her down a multitude of times in the worst possible way. Yeah, it's just an awful it's an awful way for anyone to act but for a way for a father to act is just disgusting so in march 2014 david brown died in prison of natural causes when he was 61 years old as to cinnamon and patty reports are a bit thin on where they are now both are definitely married and have children of their own I think after being released from prison, Patty got custody again of her daughter that she'd had with David, and I've read that Patty married a prison guard and went on to have more children with him. I read that Crystal, who was of course just a baby at the time all this happened, grew up and actually kept in contact with her father David in prison, despite everything that had happened. Crystal was raised by David's parents. She's now an adult and has a Facebook page to memorialise her mother, and she's put a few statuses that stated that she wanted to meet Patty and Cinnamon and that she forgave them and that she'd come to terms with everything. Um, and then she actually put another status saying that she had actually met Patty and that the meeting went quite well. So that's really nice to hear. I read in a few places that Cinnamon's first husband died. Most sources say that he took his own life, but that a few years later she found happiness again and married a police officer. I don't know how truthful that is, but um, I read it in quite a few places. And either way, I think we both hope that she's happy wherever she is. I briefly mentioned earlier that there have been two books and one TV miniseries based on this case. Uh, so the TV miniseries is called Lies, Love and Murder. And a very young Maura Kelly off of Lucas Scott's mum from One Tree Hill plays Cinnamon. I watched, to be honest, about 20 minutes of the series and then I had to stop, uh, firstly, because the quality of it on YouTube is so bad, but mainly because it annoyed me so much that they cast Clancy Brown, who is arguably a very attractive actor, to play David Brown. And I think they did this to like show how he was like super good looking and that he could charm all these young girls and then these women into falling in love with him and doing all these things for him. When in actual fact, in real life, he was a total minger. He was honestly butters and he was a child groomer and a paedophile and it just really wound me up that they were portraying him as this good looking charming guy to like I don't know 
maybe make it seem more um what's the word like maybe so the audience could understand more why these girls and women were doing all these things for him i don't know if that makes sense but that's just honestly the impression i got i don't know if you get what i mean yeah 100 percent. you're putting the onus on the victims like they couldn't resist his charm not that he went out of his way to manipulate and groom young girls into being with him yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. It was it was completely that. It did really feel like, oh, like, no wonder, like, Patty fell for him. Like, he's this, like, super charming, good-looking bloke. Like, no wonder that when she was, like, 15, she started, you know, like, having a sexual relationship with him or whatever. Like, the whole thing is just really almost, like, distasteful. Like, I really just didn't like it. It just made me feel really, really gross watching it because it's not about that at all. Like, he might have been the best looking person on the planet. He might have been the ugliest person on the planet. It doesn't matter. It wasn't about that. It was about how he treated these girls. It was it was how he groomed them. And that's why they, you know, they did these things for him. It's how he manipulated them. It had nothing to do with what he looked like. Um, so yeah, I I will link it below in case anyone wants to go and watch it and be really cross as well. But it's just, it's not really that great. I haven't watched all of it. So I really don't know how, um, you know, uh, reflective it is of the actual facts or whether it's kind of dramatized or anything like that. But I mean, it is out there and I will link it. Right. Sally, do you have anything else? No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Apart from, I'm so glad that justice has been served in this case. And I mean, not for Linda Brown, but at least the right people ended up in the right places. Because for a while there, I just thought, God, I can't bear this. And I think it's quite rare sometimes in these cases that actually the truth does come to light. So... Yeah, only that, thank God it did. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I'm so, so pleased. I'm so pleased that he was behind bars. I'm so pleased that, you know, in the end, Patty and Cinnamon got their freedom. And I don't just mean from jail, but I mean from him. Um, You know, they served their time for the crime that they committed. um, And they did it without kind of a protest or without anything. They fully kind of owned the fact that they had committed this crime. They did their time and then they were released. And then afterwards, it does really seem like they found happiness in other marriages and things like that. And I'm very, very pleased for them because I think, yeah, like I said, it just means that they've got their freedom away from that horrible man and yeah he died about six years ago now but he was in prison where he belonged and um yeah i like you said i'm glad that justice was done in this case so that is the wild story of cinnamon brown i hope you all enjoyed the roller coaster that was this episode thank you so much for joining us um but actually before we say our goodbyes i have a really small favor to ask from all you wonderful listeners I'm really aware that kind of every case I've covered has either been from the US or from the UK with kind of the exception of one South African and an Australian case. And I would really like to try and cover some crimes from different countries, but I'm a bit of a loose end as to what to search for and to try and find ones that have kind of enough information out there um, that I would be able to research and information that is ideally in English. So if you are from another country or if you know of a case from another country... Um, and uh, you want us to cover it, then please, please, please fill out the form in the description box. Um, it only takes a few seconds, but yeah, we'd really, really love to um, to hear from you and to see if there's any other cases out there that you guys want us to cover. Um, and of course, as always, if you're from the US, the UK or wherever, and you have cases from the US or the UK, then we also want to hear your suggestions too. I promise I'm, I am working my way through all the suggestions. So if you've submitted one, I'm not ignoring it. I am working my way through them. And uh, can I just make a request that um, we have no, we don't, if you want us to cover um, Kellyanne Bates, then that suggestion comes in like a few times a week. I've seen it. It's a quite a horrible case and I am going to get around to doing it. But right now, 
I just can't bring myself to research it fully and research it and do her justice because it is a really, really, really awful case. So if that's one that you were going to suggest, I've saved you five seconds of your life because it's on my list. We will do it at some point. Um, but yes, thank you. Okay, righto. I think that's everything. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening, everyone. Have a great week and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.